you know what that sound means. It's time for the Michigan DNR's Wild Talk Podcast. Welcome to the Wild Talk Podcast, where representatives from the DNR's Wildlife Division chew the fat and shoot the scat about all things habitat, feathers, and fur. With insights, interviews, and your questions answered on the air, you'll get a better picture of what's happening in the world of wildlife here in the great state of Michigan. Welcome to the November Wild Talk Podcast. I'm your host today, Katie Keene. And for the first time ever, we have a guest host with us. I have Sandy Matsky with me today. I am pumped to have you, Sandy. Thank you, Katie. It's great to be here. So you and I have worked together for a while. Can you remember the year that we met? 2004. A day you'll never forget. <laughs> exactly what I was thinking. Oh my gosh. Okay, so how long have you worked for the DNR? I've been at the Cadillac Customer Service Center since 1999. Oh my gosh. So what's your favorite part of the job? But, Sandy, you can't say uh, payroll. And you can't say all the dead stuff that we have coming into the lobby because I know you love dead critters. That's a good question. I guess my favorite part of the job is assisting our customers. That is what we do. We are here primarily for customer service. I do customer service for the public as well as our staff members. Um, My favorite part is sharing the information that customers need. We want to be helpful. We want everyone to know the rules and regulations before they head out. And anything that we can do to make things easier for our customers is what we're all about. Sandy, you know, we have people who come in the office just to see you. Is Sandy here? You are our customer service. I love our customers. And over the years, you get to be friends with people. Um, Cadillac is a small town. And We have a lot of contact with people, so we really do become friends. And, you know, secretly, Sandy does hate all the gory stuff we bring in, so we kind of have some fun with that. I think one time we did have an eyeball on the plate for you. I don't really appreciate that kind of stuff, but I will help if I have to. Oh, you're so cute. Okay, so Sandy and I have got an awesome rundown for you. We're going to start with a typical around the state segment that we normally do, but we're going to make it a little different. We're going to hit on the internal workings of the division, how everyone is working on something related to chronic wasting disease. In the interview segment, we're going to talk to our lieutenant here at the Cadillac Customer Service Center, Lieutenant John Jersich. And it's deer season, so safety and regulations are all the questions that we have coming at us. So we're going to send it back to you. And then Katie's favorite portion of the show. Yeah, that's right. The mailbag. And then we'll finish up. The end of the Wild Talk podcast with a few minutes on deer carcass transport and deer check. So November Wild Talk podcast, here we come. Deer hunters, are you ready to buy your regular deer license for this fall so you can harvest an antlered buck? Don't forget that if you want the chance to harvest two antlered deer, you're going to need to buy that combination license up front. That will give you one regular tag and one restricted tag to use. If you only buy the single deer license, you won't be able to buy that restricted tag later on. So if you want more buck for your bang, be sure to pick up the combination license. Visit mi.gov deer for more information. Welcome back. You are at the part of the show where we're going to tell you what different locations of the state are up to. But we're going to get even more specific with the makeup of the wildlife division itself. How everyone's work right now is touching chronic wasting disease. 
So let's start with our policy and regs group. Yeah, this is all about deer regulations right now. Literally months of work to gather, uh, prepare, and even to present multiple times to the Natural Resources Commission and also those public meetings. The details that they're working through are mind-blowing. This is a special group of people here in the policy and regs group. We also have a public outreach and engagement section. This is the group that I work with. Think of all the products that are developed, all the communication with media. Um, And let's take a, a few steps back and remember when the August 9th deregulation decisions were made. Working hand-in-hand with Marketing and Outreach Division, we had products developed and waiting for when deregulations were decided. Because remember, chronic wasting disease elevated to a department-wide priority. So it was no longer just within Wildlife Division's house but this branched out within the whole department. So think of all of the different hunting digests, the DNR emails you receive, YouTube videos, and even this Wild Talk podcast. This all comes out of the public outreach and engagement section. Now we also have the wildlife health section. Can you say thousands of deer heads, pieces, and parts? They're processing so many things, but of course, deer head testing right now is number one in the quickest turnaround time possible. So they have multiple shifts working down there many days of the week with the intent of being able to turn around test results for deer heads as quick as possible. But of course, we also have different seasons going on. We just wrapped up bear season, so we have bear teeth and bear hair. Elk, heads, we have elk teeth. And soon we're going to have all the trapping seasons, so we're going to have heads and skulls and teeth coming in from that. Now we also have our research folks, and we have two different specific CWD studies that are happening right now. One of them is in southern Michigan, and it's tracking the movements and survival of deer in Ingham and Clinton counties. This is partnered with Michigan State University. The other study is in the Upper Peninsula, also about deer movement, but it's with Mississippi State University. Both of these studies are going to give us some great information about how deer move. This is obviously really crucial when it comes to a disease like CWD. Now, when you think chronic wasting disease and deer hunting, you might not think about budgets and finance, but I tell you what, our program support folks are going crazy in deer season also. They might not be hands deep in a deer, but they're helping us to hire hundreds of seasonal folks to work our deer check stations. And with more people is more vehicles, more paperwork, equipment. They have to purchase supplies. So it's a kind of a crunch time for them also, not to mention it's the end of the year budget. Now we also have staff that are working on different aspects of hunter and user surveys. Think about when you receive that paper survey in the mail or maybe the link to fill it out online. So staff are entering that information, processing that, um, and building reports of all of that information that's coming in. We have folks who are building special maps that we need for every time a deer management unit changes. Think about the new 16-county CWD management zone in every different variety of map that has to be created to either hang up at your favorite licensed vendor or to hang up at the different deer check stations. All in all, this fall is a big team effort when it comes to working together for chronic wasting disease. And this is a department-wide priority. So it's not just wildlife division, but you can also think about law enforcement, marketing and outreach division, 
our parks and rec staff, fisheries division, forestry, everyone's got their investment into chronic wasting disease this year. So that wraps up our different but same around the state segment where we're telling you what folks are doing right now this month when it comes to chronic wasting disease and our everyday activities. Coming up next, we're going to have that in-depth interview with my friend, Lieutenant John Jersich here in Cadillac. So stick around. The elk and bear draw has come and gone, but you can still enter the pure Michigan hunt and have a shot at both elk and bear, along with spring and fall turkey, antlerless deer, and first pick at a managed waterfowl area. If you're one of the three lucky winners, not only do you get all those licenses, but you'll also receive a hunting prize package valued at over $4,000. Get a $5 application or two anywhere hunting licenses are sold or online at mi.gov pmh. We're at our interview segment, and we have Lieutenant John Jersich with us. He is also from the Cadillac Customer Service Center. So, John, how long have you been in law enforcement? Well, a total of 34 years. I did uh, five years working for a local police department, a sheriff's department, and came to work for the DNR in uh, 1989. So I have 29 years of service with DNR Law Division. Holy smokes. So I asked Sandy this earlier, and now I'll ask you. What is your favorite part of the job? And please don't tell me it's sitting at your desk doing paperwork. <laughs> well, it's evolved over the years. I would say initially uh, when I was a field officer, it was spending time outdoors, interacting with our outdoor user groups, uh, getting to talk with the public and resolve issues and problems. Today, you know, I'm, I'm in an administrative position. So uh, I guess the enjoyment I get is especially working across the divisions, say with wildlife division and fisheries division and and solving their issues and using our resources and law division to work effectively. I like to keep my guys in the field and working efficiently, but I, I still spend quite a bit of time on the phone answering questions for the public and providing information for them. And that's that's a daily part of my job. I still like that interaction with the community and with the public and other uh, DNR employees. So speaking of the guys around the field, explain to everyone your coverage area and who your employees are, your counties, like where is your part of the state? Okay, well, it, we go by the District 4 Law Division, and we cover an 11-county area up in uh, primarily, you could say, south of Traverse City here in northwest Michigan from the lakeshore and, and say, three counties deep. Uh, so what we see here is we have a lot of our outdoor resources, particularly our rivers, uh, which in the fall, you know, brings all of our salmon and our steelhead runs in the spring. But we're also a large recreation area uh, with a lot of the Manistee National Forest, uh, thousands of acres of state land and in our rivers and our outdoor resources and, and lakeshore communities uh, lead to a lot of recreational traffic, especially from the Grand Rapids, Muskegon area and the west side. Okay, John, so let's dig into some specific deer season type questions, especially it's November, and this is just what we're getting flooded in with right now. So when you think about all of the hunters that are hitting the field, over 500,000 people out there with firearms, some people go right to safety. Could you tell us some quick stats about the season? Right. Well, some of our concerns, especially related to safety and, and our hunters as they move a field this fall, um, you know, we have a slowly declining deer hunter population in Michigan and, and some of our other hunter Numbers are declining, but still we have a, we have an avid uh, force of hunters that will be entering the field. Um, I know we always divert to deer hunting. We're seeing a lot of that shifting to archers today and crossbow use, and uh, 
Yeah, when we look at our hunter safety statistics over the years, they've they've been dramatically reduced. And and why I'd, I'd like to point out the, that reduction, and it also holds true nationwide, is mandatory hunter education. As we know in Michigan, anybody born after 1960 um, now has to take hunter safety. So we're we're getting a couple of generations down the road now uh, that have all, for the most part, had hunter safety, which has led to a dramatic decrease in hunter incidents in our state and and across the nation as well. The other factor that's probably very critical is uh, the evolution of hunter orange and the garments that people wear today. And in Michigan, again, we have to wear a jacket, cap, hat, or vest when hunting with a firearm. There are exemptions to that, such as waterfowl hunters, turkey hunters, uh, uh, some of the predator hunting, you know, has uh, has exemptions to that. But the main thing, hunter orange and mandatory hunter safety training has led to a massive decline in in hunting incidents. Um, I could point out that if you look at statistics back from the 1940s and 50s, we would frequently have as many as nearly 50 incidents, 10, 12 fatalities. Uh, Today, we generally see no fatalities. And last year, we had eight incidents statewide, one fatality. Um, One of the things I'll, I'll point out, and well, there's always carelessness, and there's always uh, mishandling of firearms and crossbows. But when you look at those incidents in detail, most of them involve uh, careless use or uh, accidental discharge leading to a self-inflicted wound. Um, rarely is it actually a mistaken game or a line of fire. Last year, we did have two incidents. And one I might point out, and I think this is a critical thing to look at, one last year involved the use of a crossbow and misidentification of the victim as game. Um, it always surprises me that, that occasionally we will see an archery or a crossbow incident because those are largely short range uh, issues. But again, people are moving around at that time of the year in camouflage, not wearing hunter orange, and just how quick something can happen. Uh, of course, the classic deer drives. There was one incident last year involving a deer drive uh, where a, a stray round struck victim. But again, going back to the uh, proper safe handling of your equipment um, and mandatory hunter safety, and of course, complying with hunter orange always reduces uh, any of the incidents that are likely to occur. So John, what about tree stand safety? We hear so much about harnesses, but I feel like still every October, we're going to hear about one soon where someone's falling out of a tree stand going up or down. Oh, absolutely. This is probably our number one injury area uh, as our hunters move afield in the fall. Again, if you look at historically over my career, possibly uh, there was a time when everybody just climbed up in a tree, pounded some two by fours and some plywood up there and uh, made a stand. Of course, very unsafe, lots of falls. Today, our equipment has evolved. And, and again, you know, as, as more and more hunters are taking to the trees, uh, now we allow firearms hunting from trees, which we didn't allow years ago. A lot of good commercial products out there, a lot of good ladder stands and a lot of good safe uh, platforms that you can hunt on. And I highly recommend that you use commercially manufactured stands and ladders, inspect them every year, make sure they're well attached. And probably the one of the biggest things, and this is advocated in many other states as well, uh, the use of a safety harness. When you go up into any type of an elevated stand, uh, use a safety harness. Uh, Don't cobble anything together with a rope or a belt or anything like that. Um, While we don't track these, I think most of our experienced hunters out there, um, when you get to talking in a group, 
They all know a friend or a family member, possibly even themselves, uh, that had a fall or a near fall or, or some incident where maybe they came away lucky uh, with a minor or no injury. Or once again, um, when you start doing, say, for instance, in our department, hunt from standing vehicle permits and find out the real reason that they're now paralyzed was a fall from an elevated platform. So uh, that's one of the things I think as far as injuries out there today, we don't track them, but I think uh, our avid hunting community out there all has a story to tell about someone that they know and something to think about before you go up. John, I have a question for you. When you approach a hunter in the woods, how do you want the hunter to react? I mean, we're in the woods with a firearm and you're an officer. What do we do? What do you want us to do when we see an officer coming? Well, certainly don't panic. <laughs> uh, that's that's the bad thing to do. But it's, it's at best a very uncomfortable dance from uh, both sides of the fence on this one. Um, people, frequently they are nervous when approached by a conservation officer. In fact, they may be doing nothing wrong, uh, but they're nervous. Uh, in some cases, they may be excited. This is the first time they've ever actually ran into a conservation officer. And and we do have that problem, and uh, our officers that are well-experienced in the field with a number of years have all had some sort of a near miss, or they've grabbed a barrel or taken a gun away from somebody. Probably one of the most difficult situations that we approach uh, in the field um, is the waterfall hunting community. Uh, you'll come up maybe in waders or you're in a boat. Uh, there's three people in a blind. They've all got shotguns waving in different directions and going past everybody's heads and pointing at the officers inadvertently. Um, one of the things I guess I, I guess we could summarize it by saying, you know, be calm. There, there's no reason to, to uh, be afraid or be nervous. Uh, the standard practice of handling a firearm, watch the direction of your muzzle. Uh, watch where your firearm's pointed lay it down, turn it away, uh, pointing away from yourself and the officer and your your companion hunters. Um, comply with whatever the officer wants you to do. If they want to see your firearm, if they want to expect your, inspect your firearm or ammunition, uh, let them do it. Uh, the officer will give you instructions on what to do with the handling of your gun. Um, just good common sense practices. Watch your muzzle direction and, uh, and what you're doing with your firearm while you're engaging in conversation with an officer. Um, it's also going to take place now with crossbows. Similarly, uh, crossbow is an awkward item and uh, you know, has a very deadly uh, broadhead there on the end of the bolt. And again, watch the direction. Where is it pointing? Uh, pointed in a proper direction. Difficult circumstance may be uh, officer approaches you. You're sitting in a tree stand 15 feet over their head. Um, officer may want to you know, have you lower or inspect your license, maybe come down. Um, that's the thing is Quite often, the officers, when they're, they're doing a license check, um, they may want you to come out of your blind, uh, leave your duck blind, uh, come down from a tree stand. Just be compliant. Um, remember, they're going to want to inspect your, probably your hunting license, possibly the ID that you used. There's going to be a little bit of a transaction going on and some discussions. So uh, I guess get the gun or the crossbow out of the, uh, the situation. Um, one of the things that our officers are increasingly running into today is uh, the the CPL issue. They're, they're carrying a concealed handgun. Um, again, it's, it's an awkward dance because under the law, they need to announce that they are actually carrying a concealed weapon and provide the appropriate documents. Um, so one of the things that they should do if they're carrying a CPL is make sure the officer knows that right away, that uh, you know I am 
carrying a concealed handgun. I am a CPL holder. Announce that so that that comes out on the table up front. Another thing that we may see, and there's a large prevalence of handguns out there today. Um, some of our hunters may be carrying a, a non-concealed handgun. They may be hunting with a handgun. It could be in a shoulder rig or, or a hip holster uh, on their belt. Uh, if they're not carrying under the authority of the CPL, those firearms do need to be exposed, not partially buried under a coat. Um, our officers are going to be looking at that. They're going to be looking for CPL violations and uh so on the handgun issue, let's get that right out on the table. If you've got a handgun on you, let the officer know right away and where it is. And, of course, safety practices, keep your hand off of it unless directed to do so. It's great that you brought up the CPL. That is one of the the biggest calls that we get here at the Customer Service Center this time of year. If you have your CPL, can you carry it when you're archery hunting? Yes, you can. It is an exemption that's been granted um, under the CPL licensing. Uh, those laws are going to overrule the uh, the current DNR wildlife laws. So if you are a licensed CPL holder, you can carry that firearm while you're bow hunting. But without a CPL, you can't. Right, John? Correct. Uh, we could we could go into a variety of complicated issues there. But in general, if, uh, if you're archery, deer, bear hunting... Uh, you should have your archery gear only and no other firearm with you in your possession. Okay, so now we're out hunting um, and we're still talking about the safety side of hunting. Talk about safety zones around buildings and, you know, you got private property buttoned up to each other. Where can folks sit on their own property? Okay, well, this is a source of a lot of complaints each fall. Um, safety zones have evolved a little bit. I think most everybody in the state now is an experienced hunter is aware that our safety zone rules in Michigan are 450 feet. So just keep that in mind, 450 feet from many occupied buildings or dwellings or farm structures. Um, now, that relates today, and there's been some evolution in this, it relates today to firearms. Um, a few years ago, uh, regulations were relaxed to allow you to hunt within that 450-foot safety zone with archery gear. And that was to allow you know targeting of deer populations in more of our urban areas and suburban areas with high deer numbers. And uh, in Michigan, you know, our lands continue to get divided into smaller subsets and uh, and it, it allows for that. So you can hunt with your archery and crossbow gear within the safety zone of 450 feet, say a neighbor's home or farm. Um, and uh, But with firearms, it still holds 450 feet of an occupied building, uh, dwelling, or any farm buildings or related operations. Here's a very common question that our officers and our offices deal with. Can I target shoot within a safety zone? And you can. Um that was an attorney general ruling some years ago that brings safety zones are simply um, uh, a law that was designed to deal with hunting, not target shooting. So can I shoot within the safety zone? Yes. Um, a lot of times our officers end up handling neighbor disputes over noise uh, and that sort of thing. And, and think about um, courtesy, courtesy to your neighbors, adjacent property owner, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, it, it ends up with a lot of conflicts um, that we'd really rather not respond to. But think of courtesy also if you want to say target shoot within a safety zone. So you could be on your own property and hunt within just a couple yards of a building or structure. That's fine. But if you wanted to hunt within 450 feet of another person's 
you need to have their written permission, right? You could do it. You just have to have their permission to do so. Well, correct. Your own safety zone is your own safety zone. And in essence, you can do what you want within it. But say you have a neighbor and you want to hunt within their safety zone. And that may be entirely legal and permissible as long as you obtain that permission in writing. A little bit different than our other our regulations as far as trespassing. Uh, you will have to obtain that safety zone exemption in writing from a neighboring uh, property owner. Good point. So let's talk about trespass real quick as we're talking about neighbors. So um, I shoot a deer on my property, but it jumps over the fence over into the other field and it's no longer on my property. What can I do? Very common uh, occurrence, uh, especially during our, our archery hunts, but uh, could be during any season. Uh, as particular as related to deer. Now, remember the law offers no exemption for you to pursue your game onto other property. Private property rights are private property rights. You will have to obtain the permission of that property owner to enter their property and retrieve your game. Okay. Exemptions, you know, in our hunting laws, uh, you are allowed to enter private property to recover Um, your dog. If your dog goes on someone else's property, you can enter that property without a firearm or bow, most immediate direct route and collect your dog and move off the property. But but when it comes to recovering a deer, if uh, one neighbor makes a stand that uh, you're not entering the property to recover the deer, you might have to call us and we could try to mediate the situation. But um, obviously everybody wants to see an animal recovered, but you have no legal right to enter without permission. Um, you can't tag a deer of another, so that property owner can't just tag the animal that, that you took. I hear that question a lot too. We get those complaints direct. Sometimes we take them through a local 911 dispatch center. And most frequently today, we receive them through our 1-800-REPORT-ALL-POACHING line in Lansing. So when can someone call this line? And they can text it now too, can't they? Yeah. Uh, as as continued technological advancements are occurring, um, first off, I'll back up. Frequent question is, where do I find that number? It's very easy. It's right on the front page of the hunting guide. It's right within the first few pages of the fishing guide. It's on a, a number of our publications. Here's the easiest one turn your license over. It's right on the back of any of your fishing hunting licenses. Any of our licensed stock carries that 1-800 number on the back. Um, Today, everybody's carrying around a phone. Uh, You could also look it up. Any of our DNR websites are gonna have that available. That number's available almost any place today. But here's the nice thing about the RAP line. As technology is continuing to improve, we're now running a a 365-day-a-year 24-hour-a-day actual dispatch center, uh, just as as technologically advanced as any of your local 911 systems. We actually bring on additional staff during the fall uh, to handle the extra call load. Call load coming into our wrap line in downtown Lansing, this will surprise you, is almost 40,000 calls a year. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Obviously, a lot of those calls are, are information sort of calls and and that sort of thing, but uh, actual complaints are less than that, but but still you know, tens of thousands. Um, those calls can be distributed out from the dispatch center, again, 24-7, 365, to the local conservation officer. One of the things is I've always noticed, and, and it was true when I worked in the field, everybody wants their local officer's number uh, personally, and, and they want them on speed dial, but remember, uh, each officer isn't available 24 hours a day, 365. So what we always do is, advise them to call the wrap line um, with our officer numbers today of field. We're, we're pretty much at full staffing. Um, 
somebody's going to be available to give you a call or actually respond to your complaint. Those calls are dispatched just like any other law enforcement agency. The officers all have in-car computers today. Uh, They can be sent electronically. They're all carrying department-issued iPhones. That information can move now in real time immediately. Uh, We haven't had that capability until maybe... Well, in the last five to 10 years, that's evolved. So technology is really catching up. Uh, You can make a call from Barriga to downtown Lansing and have that information turned around to an officer on a two-track right on their cell phone or right on their laptop. We're getting increasing numbers of text complaints today. A lot of people, uh, we're in the text generation. They feel comfortable texting information, especially maybe when it involves... uh, uh, the sort of call that they're uncomfortable calling in. Today, our officers are receiving GPS coordinates on bait piles, uh, illegal blinds, illegal stands, uh, illegal kill sites, uh, and they're able, again, to use their their computers and their iPhones and the technology that's available to respond with pinpoint accuracy today to some complaints. I was shocked last year when you showed me aerial photos and how easy it was to see even a small pile of bait um, can you explain how how that works and how easy it is to, to see so that people know it's not going to go unnoticed? Oh, absolutely. Um, what we generally try to do is uh, we have department pilots uh, and contract pilots that are well experienced in this, this area. They fly all over the state for a variety of wildlife survey issues and, and other issues uh, um, that we can do from the sky better and, and cover more ground and, and in more of a timely manner and with greater efficiency. What we try to do uh, in baiting enforcement, uh, we'll take the local officers up, uh, get somebody with some some area experience. Um, that way it's a lot easier to identify where exactly you are and relay that information to the local officer. We've spoke a lot about technology today. And one of the things, and I believe last year when I was showing you photographs, uh, we could do this as quick as I would be up in the plane over flying a three, four county area over a few hours. We would take photographs and capture GPS coordinates from the sky, actually able to come down at the airport, load that data to the local officers. And by that evening, they would actually have aerial photographs and GPS coordinates of those baiting locations. Very efficient operation. Uh, I want to say one of the days flying in the uh, Benzie, Grand Traverse, Leland, Wexford area. I recall we came up with 21 illegally baited locations. And we add that to uh, the box of tricks for our local officers to, to get down there on the ground and make those contacts with uh, those people that are violating the law. It was shocking to see the deer trails. You know, the patterns are, are made very quickly. So you can tell that that bait pile just wasn't put down today, that this has been going on for a while. Oh, right. Some of these, not only have these bait piles and the illegal bait piles been going on for weeks, they've been going on for years. You know, these are traditionally uh, locations that are baited year after year. Again, with baiting being legal last year uh, and still being legal in many of the areas this year, um, uh, some of the baiting violations are, are smaller in scope. Some of them are massive. I think one of the largest ones we had last year was a whole agricultural gravity box that was driven through a field dropping tons of grain and sugar beets. Um, And our officers were able to deal with that on the opening day of the firearm season. So again, with with the movement towards no baiting, this will become a priority with my officers to work this. And it should be a priority with our public to be alert, be aware, 
um, in the areas that are that are closing to baiting. Um, we really need their information as far as uh, things they may hear, they may have knowledge of, and and like you said, it, it affects deer movements dramatically. Um, frequently cited that the deer start moving rather nocturnal only. And uh, it's a public resource. The, these these deer belong to everyone, and uh, and we should have a, a level playing field for all the hunters. And uh, baiting and baiting violations take away from that. And and we're there to make it fair for everyone. Well, John, we could ask you questions all day long. In fact, this is kind of what we do to you all day long. We so appreciate you coming on for this interview. Well, thank you for having me anytime. And the more information we can get out there to the public, the better. Uh, And it makes my officer's job a lot easier as well. And they want to make sure that the public's well-informed. Is it time to renew the license plate on your car or truck? When that moment arrives, show your support for Michigan elk and conservation by getting the Wildlife Habitat Plate at the Secretary of State. 2018 marks the 100th year since the reintroduction of wild elk to the state of Michigan. And while the elk have been here for a century, this plate is only available for a limited time, so don't miss out. Visit mi.gov elk and click on the license plate for more information. Welcome back. What a great interview with Lieutenant John Jersich. Hope you enjoyed that. Now it's time for the mailbag. One, two, three. Randy writes, I live in Macomb County. I don't hunt and I don't let anyone hunt either, but I have a salt block in my backyard. The deer, birds, rabbits, possums, etc. lick it all the time. Can I leave it there? with the new baiting laws. Thank you, Randy. Well, Randy, we're glad you asked. So, no, you can no longer have that salt lick out, and I'll tell you why. So, Macomb County is now part of the new 16-county chronic wasting disease management zone, and into effect immediately went a baiting and feeding ban for deer. So even if you aren't um, intentionally feeding deer, if you are knowingly bringing them in, it would be illegal. So in the salt lick, for instance, you said you're bringing in deer. Therefore, it would be illegal. Now, there's something you can do. You could raise that salt block in a manner that makes it elevated. So it's no longer reachable by deer. Therefore, other critters could still get to it, but you've made it inaccessible to deer. That's the important key right there. And remember the difference between baiting and feeding. Baiting is when you're hunting. Feeding is basically recreational viewing. That is illegal in the 16-county chronic wasting disease management zone. Thanks for that question, Randy. Got another one in the mailbag here. It's from Sean. Hello, my friends and I are wondering if the DNR had any resources for us to either improve our land for white-tailed deer like sapling giveaways, et cetera, for managing our 40 acres. He's going to go have some soil samples done, but just wants to know in the meantime what he could do. Great question, Sean. There's something that we have out there that if you search DNR Landowner's Guide, you will get an actual guide that will have habitat types and different wildlife species and how you can maintain your property. It's an awesome resource. 
when folks email us, we can actually give you the direct link to things, which is super handy in this case. But um, for the rest of you listening right now, just search DNR Landowner's Guide. Something else uh, for private land management suggestions, you can always tap your local conservation district. They're a great resource for forestry and wildlife benefits also. So thank you, Sean. All right. I know we're all thinking deer because it's November, but don't forget it's still fall turkey season. And I just got a question from Bob. He writes, hello, I'm trying to find out the reasoning why Wayne County is closed to turkey hunting for the fall season. I hunt across the street from Monroe County and have plenty of turkeys on my land. I'm not asking for permission or any special treatment. I'm just trying to understand the process involved in the decision making of when an area is open and closed. Great question, Bob. So he's got a couple of questions here. One, county line delineations. So, so turkey units are set up using county lines. It's a common way to delineate a location that folks can know. Everyone can get a map and figure out where county lines are. So it's a common, it's a common method. But unfortunately, county lines aren't always going to be convenient. And I totally understand this because I also live on a county line. One side of my road is one county, the other side is another. And sometimes this helps you and sometimes it hurts you being in different counties like that. So this is the other side of the question. But the goal of the fall turkey season is to reduce or maintain turkey populations. So there are places in the state where the fall season is closed. So if you pull, if you go to mi.gov turkey, you can see the fall turkey hunting map and see all those locations. So I too am in a location where fall turkey hunting is not allowed just as well as Bob. So thank you for that question, Bob. I appreciate it. It wouldn't be November without a classic deer parts email. And this is the type of email that I seem to always open when I'm eating my lunch at my desk. And the day I got this email, I was no joke eating marinara sauce with potato gnocchi. Maybe it's always made out of potato. I don't know. But it was red sauce with white stuff in it. That's what I'm eating. And I open up this picture. And it's a picture of deer lungs. And they have some spots on it. And Diane writes, Can you tell us what these spots are on the deer? The officer at the checkpoint told us to send you the picture. Thank you for any help you can give us. Well, after looking at the picture, we're able to determine it was a pulmonary hemorrhage. And this is something that occurs because lung tissue is spongy. And then when blood um, spreads, it spreads in a round manner. So it, you know, startles you because you see something round, but it's, it's kind of common. It actually kind of shows in the end how your deer ended up. Um, it's always different because that's what we hear many times. I feel dressed so many deer. I've never seen this before. Well, deer might always um, have, been, have died because you shot it, but their actual way of death is always different, if that makes sense. So Diane, all is well. Feel free to eat the deer. Nothing is wrong. All right. And I got one more question. So glad we got this one. Very common this time of year. It's November. So even though firearm season is right around the corner, we still got lots of day of archery season. And someone asks, can I carry a pistol on my side when I'm archery hunting? This is a pretty easy one. The only way you can carry a firearm with you while archery hunting is if you have a concealed pistols license or a CPL. That's it. So if this is something that means a lot to you, you can go through the steps to get a concealed pistols license or a CPL so that you can carry a firearm with you during archery season. Otherwise, it's illegal. And that wraps up the mailbag. So thank you. And don't forget, 
You can always be featured on the mailbag, but you got to write us in a question. Coming up next, I'll have my friend Sandy Matsky with me. We are going to close out this November wild talk segment with a little deer nitty gritty. The details, deer carcass transport and deer check stations. So stay tuned. Fall is upon us and that means deer hunting. We at the DNR want to wish all hunters a safe and successful deer season. And we also want to thank hunters for staying informed on chronic wasting disease so that together we can work to have healthy wildlife for current and future generations. Check out the 2018 Michigan Hunting Digest or visit mi.gov CWD for important regulation changes and additional information. And don't forget, your actions matter. to the November Wild Talk podcast. But before we wrap this up, we have a segment about deer check and deer carcass movement. This gives me the opportunity to say go blue. Stop it. Oh my gosh. She's just on and she's taking the show over. Go blue. (laughs) You totally are. I'm just going to cut that off before it keeps going. All right. So what we're going to do is top five things you should know for this deer season. So top five things you should know. Number five. Deer check stations. They're found at mi.gov slash deer check. There's a clickable map. You can see it on any of your devices, smartphone in the field, your tablet, your desktop at work. Click on the locations, get your hours of operation, and even directions to get there. We have over 112 deer check stations this year. This is also where you're going to find the new deer head drop box locations. They're great for when you're traveling Odd hours of the night, you can still drop off your deer heads 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's also a list of partnering taxidermists who'll remove lymph nodes for you. So anywhere in the state, we encourage you to stop at any deer check station. We take the info about your deer, the county you harvested, the township, date of harvest. We age your deer and we take down that antler information. If you're in a county where we have deer head surveillance goals, we'll ask to take the head, again, voluntary. Now, if you're in the 16-county chronic wasting disease management zone, listen close. If you harvest in this area and have no plans to leave, we hope that you'll visit and drop off a head within the area. We have over 50 locations right here alone. We're collecting thousands of deer heads and we need your help to do it. Now, if you hunt in the CWD area, but plan to travel outside the zone, say you're headed back home, then you are required to visit a deer check station within 24 hours to register your deer. Matsky, when I say we're collecting heads, just as a heads up, it's deer heads. Oh, thanks, Katie. I just wanted to make sure you're clear on that, that when you show up and I say, can I take your head? You don't take offense to that. I'm glad that you're pointing that out because we kind of get lost in our own little world. And when we say things like that and people overhear us, they do think we're a little odd. <laughs> like you're at the grocery store and someone says, hey, what you been doing? We're like, we have been taking a lot of heads and <laughs> deer heads. Okay. People take it, you know, they're a little offended sometimes. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't know why. All right. Top things you should know. Number four, if you get a wall hanger in the CWD management zone, you can still have a wall hanger. You just have two more steps. Stop and register that deer somewhere 
within 24 hours of take. You can even register it using your smartphone at one of the Dropbox locations. You'll leave with your deer head and a CWD tag, but you got to bring that head back to us. You're registered in the system. You can also visit one of the taxidermists that we have listed who are trained to remove all that tissue that we need. Matsky, do you know where all of our deer heads go? Do tell, Katie. East Lansing, Michigan, home of the Michigan State Spartans. Did you know our disease lab is partnered with MSU? That's great, Katie. It still doesn't change the outcome of the Michigan-Michigan State football game. Uh, Again, go blue. Oh my gosh, don't push it, Matsky. Thanks for having me, Katie. I really, I enjoy this opportunity. Oh, moving on. Okay. What you should know, number three, if you're in that 16 county CWD management zone, but you want to transport your deer out, you need to do one of the following. One, you could present your deer within 24 hours of harvest at any deer check station. Remember, go to mi.gov slash deer check. We have over 112 locations or You can transport a deboned or quartered deer with a clean skull cap, just straight antlers, or a clean hide or finished taxidermy. So unless you register your deer within 24 hours, there's no more movement of whole carcasses, spinal columns, and brain tissue. Times have changed. You can't just dump your carcass everywhere and anywhere. The best case scenario is your garbage at home or a DNR dumpster. If you have to, you can bury it deep enough so scavengers can't get to it, but close to the kill site as possible. Our goal is to avoid long distant movements of carcasses. And number two, keep hunting. Your actions really do matter. And finally, drum roll. The number one thing you need to know for this deer season, give yourself a pat on the back. You got yourself out in the woods. You made hunting a fall priority And that can be a challenge in life. We are so busy. Take some pride in continuing your traditions. So many things are tugging us every direction. And if you're the one who's keeping your deer camp, your house, your family motivated to hunt, hats off. If you have someone you're getting into this lifestyle, give yourself a nod too. You are getting it done. Matsky. How was it? It was great, Katie. It was great. Really, this is really important information. We get a lot of calls at the DNR customer service centers. If people still have questions, call us Monday through Friday. We're here to help. We're here to figure it all out for you. Thank you for joining us for the November Wild Talk podcast. We hope you had fun and we'll catch you next time. This has been the Wild Talk Podcast, your monthly podcast airing the first of each month and offering insights into the world of wildlife across the state of Michigan. You can reach the Wildlife Division at 517-284-9453 or dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov.